Explores. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. If you haven't yet listened to part one of our Cleopatra series, I'd go back and do that before getting into this one. Last time, we watched her grow up in the city of Alexandria, amid both luxury, excess, and the constant threat of death by family member. When her pharaoh father fled Egypt, she went with him, experiencing Rome for the very first time. General Pompey and some of their other Roman friends helped dear old dad win back his throne from his other daughter, Berenice. And then, years later, he did something unfortunate. He left Egypt to Cleopatra and her annoying brother, Ptolemy XIII, and then he also put them under Rome's guardianship. She ruled well for a while, but her brother's advisors conspired against her. Now, Cleopatra's a 21-year-old exile. How will she find her way back to greatness? Grab a fetching cloak, a burlap sack large enough to get rolled up in, and a strapping male companion. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My pirate queens, Amy C., Barbara, Becky, Brittany, Chloe, Emily H., Erin, Jackie, Jamie, Jessica B., Justine, Kara D., Kayla, Lauren, Lauren O., Louise, Lydia, Marie Claire, Mira, Mikkel, Morgan, Samantha, Sean, Stephanie, and Wendy, and my lady presidents, Alexis, Alicia, Amanda H., Amanda P., Amy, Brendan, Ashley, Audrey, Belinda, Caroline, Cassie, Catherine, Krista, Claire, Courtney, Courtney H., Cracky, Crystal, Dana, Debbie, Diana, Elizabeth M., Elizabeth G., Ellie, Elspeth, Emily C., Eve, Ginger, Holly, Iris, Jeanette, Caitlin, Karen R., Casey, Kat G., Kat U., Kelly, Kelly F., Kim, Larissa, Lauren K., Louisa, Maggie, Manda, Mary, Meg, Melissa, Nancy, Nicole, Nkiru, Pamela, Paul, Sasha, Sarah S., another equally fabulous Sarah S., Townsend, Veronica, whose voice features as our Cleopatra, and Wendy N., and to the Imperators and Augustas who give me more each month than I ask for, Lee, Avery, Karen C., Jessica S., and Jackie C. Becoming a patron really helps me keep the podcast going, and for less than the cost of a coffee a month, you get exclusive access to bonus episodes, Q&As, interviews, and more. To find out more, check out my website. And now, back we go to Ancient Egypt. So, it's 48 BCE, and dear brother Ptolemy XIII and his advisors have just managed to kick Cleopatra out of Alexandria, exiling her to the desert and what they hope will be permanent obscurity. But she isn't about to sit around and pout about how unfair the world is. After fleeing through Middle Egypt, then Palestine, then Syria, this rejected royal gets busy. She spends a hot, dusty summer raising an army. I imagine her command of languages comes in handy here, as she uses her epic powers of persuasion to recruit some, hopefully, loyal followers. 
When we picture Cleopatra, we often think of her lounging in luxury, but this is not her situation. She knows how to rough it when she needs to and is willing to go to great lengths and suffer great discomfort. Cleopatra is an adventuress as well as a queen. Knives out, she marches through the Sinai to camp in the Eastern Delta. For a clearer picture of where she is exactly, check out my map of ancient Egypt, which you'll find in the show notes and in my Etsy shop, if you fancy one to hang on your wall. Unfortunately, Brother Ptolemy and his team are ready for her with a 20,000-man force full of pirates and outlaws. They are stationed at a fortress in Pelusium, making it nigh on impossible for her to break through. She is relegated to the Red Sands down the coast, where she paces and schemes. She's outnumbered, which means she will probably lose if it comes to a battle. How to get around them and back into Alexandria? How to reclaim her throne and neuter her brother for good? That's when fate intervenes in the form of one Julius Caesar. We've met him before with our fine friend Servilia, but let's revisit his dating profile anyway. Some people say Julius Caesar has an ego, but he thinks he just has what you'd call a big personality. And he is pretty big in so many manly ways. Ambition, intelligence, cunning, man-tackle. His friends like to joke that he's craftier than a Bond villain, but obviously so much more virtuous and handsome. He enjoys nothing so much as war games, reciting poetry, snappy dressing, slaying the ladies, and pointed adoration of his soldiers. And wait, did he already say slaying the ladies? He's never seen a title, a foreign land, or a fine woman he didn't want to come, see, and conquer. He's a totally chill guy, as long as your team's Caesar. Just don't joke about his bald spot. Seriously, just don't. As a reminder of where we're at in Rome's history, this is right around the time when the first triumvirate is duking it out for who will control their home country. Right about now, the tide is starting to turn against Pompey the Great. This is the year he gets roundly trounced by Julius at a place called Pharsalus. He limps off the battlefield to seek a place of refuge and immediately thinks of Alexandria. I mean, he is the only reason those Ptolemies are even on the throne, remember? Their dad loved him, and those kids owe him a favor. So they'll definitely roll out the welcome mat. What he doesn't know is that Ptolemy Thirteen and his band of advisors are keenly aware that they need to stay in Rome's good books, and they worry that in Pompey they have backed a losing horse. Should they try and make nice with him, as Ptolemy Twelve did, or should they side with Julius Caesar? Ptolemy isn't sure. But his three main advisors, Theodotus, Achilles, and the eunuch Pothinus, are all like, Ugh, we're overcomplicating this. Let's just chop his head off and be done with it. They decide he's too much of a danger, and after all, as Pothinus apparently says, Dead men don't bite. Pompey lands just off of Pelusium, where he's picked up in a small boat and taken to shore. He hasn't even stepped onto the sands when a band of soldiers kill him while his entire force watches in their ships out in the waves. When Caesar arrives three days later, ahead of most of his troops, in search of Pompey, he's gratified by his warm reception. But then, when Ptolemy Thirteen hands him Pompey's severed head, Surprise! You're welcome! It's said that Caesar bursts into tears. Yes, so maybe it is convenient that his enemy is gone, but this guy wasn't always his enemy. He was once his ally and even his son-in-law. Caesar had it all planned out. He would forgive Pompey, and then they would march back to Rome arm-in-arm, arm, skipping together, uniting a divided Rome. 
But Ptolemy has robbed him of that future. So instead of pumping his fist and saying, Sweet job, Egypt. He is pissed. Ptolemy's plan has blown up right in his face. And when Caesar looks around, he's annoyed by the mess he sees in Egypt. He can't afford for the Mediterranean's breadbasket to explode in civil strife, especially when they still owe Rome a good amount of money. What is this mess you've made, Ptolemy? And where is your sister? Ugh, you know what? Get her back here. We're all going to sit down and have a nice little chat. Young Ptolemy XIII has no interest in being commanded by Caesar, or in seeing his sister back at the palace. Luckily, Cleo has plenty of spies in high places, and she gets word of the goings-on anyway. Like all great leaders, Cleo recognizes an open door when she sees it. Julius is now Rome's most powerful man. He's currently mad at her brother, and he has troops, or soon will have. She has one chance to win his favor and woo him to her side, and she isn't about to miss it. But if she isn't careful, this door might just slam on her fingers. When and how to get to Caesar is going to be one of the most fateful decisions of her life. She could send a messenger to plead her case, but that could be intercepted or they could be bribed. Sometimes, if you want something done right, you just gotta get up and do it yourself. So she gets her loyal servant, Apollodorus, to sneak her back into Alexandria in a tiny boat. This is not an afternoon pleasure cruise. She has to navigate around some treacherous swamplands, then go all the way down south and up the Nile, past patrols and who knows what other dangers. It's a trip of some eight days, all told, and those days have got to be very tense. Eventually, Apollodorus rows her into Alexandria as the sun sets. But how to get in without anyone seeing? She decides to pull her own version of the Trojan horse. Apollodorus rolls her up in a giant carpet, throws her over his burly shoulder, and carries her into the palace. Well, that's how the legend goes. Plutarch tells us that, As it was impossible to escape notice otherwise, she stretched herself at full length inside a bed sack, while Apollodorus tied the bedsack up with a cord and carried it indoors to Caesar. Some historians think it's the type of sack one might have transported papyrus scrolls in, which is a nice image. Papyrus scrolls are full of wit and knowledge. And you know what? So is Cleo. Regardless of its exact dimensions, Apollodorus covers her with something and walks her right in with none the wiser. Scrolls coming through! Nothing to see here! He has to take her all the way to the suite Julius has locked himself into, since the Alexandrians are now riding outside the royal complex. Turns out they're pretty pissed to see another Roman lording it over the Egyptian royal family yet again. We don't know if she's actually unrolled in front of Caesar. If your entire future depended on the impression you made on one particular Roman gentleman, wouldn't you want a minute to freshen up and check your breath? Despite what most pieces of art will tell you, she probably isn't dripping in jewels or dressed in nothing but her lacy underthings. I mean, come on, Renaissance painters. Eyes up. In fact, it's fair to say that she must plan this moment carefully, from what she's wearing to every word she's going to say. This secret meeting is a giant risk for Cleo. She's shrewd, adaptable, and knows a thing or two about rhetoric. But still, her heart must be pounding as she makes her way into his rooms. We have no idea what she and Julia say to each other, so let's do a little creative scene setting. Hey, Julius. Oh, damn. 
How'd you get in here? Listen, about this whole who should rule Egypt business. I think we both know I'm the person for the job. Go on. I'm listening. You want some of Egypt's riches. I want the throne I was destined to wear. Let's be friends, and we can both get what we want. Political friends, for sure. But also, sexy friends? Maybe. Does she charm him into bed with her sexy magic, poisoning his mind, as Roman writers would like us to believe? Perhaps. But arguing that she humps her way into Caesar's good books does them both a huge disservice. As we've already learned, Caesar is a master seducer. There's no way some horizontal tennis time with a pretty young queen is going to force him to do anything he doesn't want to. And Cleo's got a lot more going for her than the sweet delights of her body. There's every reason to believe that she convinces him that allying with her is a good idea without resorting to such tactics. Though knowing how much Julius likes a strong, opinionated woman, at least in bed, we can imagine that he's extremely impressed. It was by this device of Cleopatra's that Caesar was first captivated, Plutarch tells us of the unfurling carpet trick, for she showed herself to be a bold coquette, and succumbing to the charm of further intercourse with her, he reconciled her to her brother. No matter how it all goes down, this we know for certain. This exiled queen, with everything to lose, convinces Rome's most powerful general that she's the one he should throw his weight behind. I think if Cleo could sum it up, she might say... I came, I saw, I conquered. To say that her brother doesn't take this well is putting it mildly. In fact, it's said he runs into the street and throws a proper hissy before promptly finding himself under house arrest. But from there, not all is smooth sailing for Cleo and Julius. Far from it. Not only are the Alexandrians angry about Caesar storming their city, but they're angry at Cleo for getting into political bed with him. Over the next several months, they'll be trapped in the palace and fighting for their lives under a full-scale Alexandrian rebellion. And the Alexandrians are not to be underestimated. Cleo's great-uncle, Ptolemy XI, was once torn limb from limb in the streets because the people were mad that he murdered his wife. I mean, fair enough. They most certainly subscribe to the eye-for-an-eye brand of justice, so Cleo's royal name is not enough to protect her, and Julius Caesar might not be either. Though Ptolemy XIII is under house arrest, his supporters are already out there raising armies. Not wanting to be left out, Cleo's younger sister, Arsinoe IV, sneaks out of the palace complex and helps lead a rebellion herself. Though, of course, the guy in charge of that rebellion, Achilles, gets mad because she has too many opinions. Ugh, men. No matter, Arsinoe kills him and takes over. The Ptolemy women do not suffer fools. Unfortunately, her troops ultimately betray her, turning her in in exchange for Ptolemy XIII, and that has got a sting. During all this madness, Julius and Cleo are trapped in the palace with nothing but his skeleton crew of 4,000 men. Small potatoes compared to the rebel forces. He can't get word out to try and rally reinforcements, so he and Cleo try to broker some peace. At a banquet they throw, they find out that some of Ptolemy's advisors are planning to poison Julius and murder Cleo as well. Fights are breaking out in the streets on the regular. 
Before long, they're cutting off the palace supply lines, determined to starve them out. Julius's men freak out because someone fills the palace reservoirs with salt water, and Caesar's like, We're Romans. Pull up your big boy pants and dig some holes. The rebel forces even start erecting assault towers. How long will it be before they breach the defensive walls? At one point, with battle raging around the Pharos, Julius is tossed from his boat and almost drowns. In desperation, he has his troops set fire to his ships in the harbor. Better that than have the enemy take them. This may or may not be responsible for burning down the city's world-famous Alexandrian library. I can't imagine Cleo is all that psyched about that. She has to be anxiously biting her nails, wondering if she's played her hand right. Have all her power plays been for nothing? Can she and Caesar pull this off? And yet it isn't all bad news. If the Alexandrians are hoping to get Julius out of Egypt, all they really succeed in doing is pushing him and Cleo together. Turns out that she and 52-year-old Julius find plenty to do to pass the time on lockdown. Namely, lots of horizontal tennis. So, at least there's that. Eventually, some allies swoop in from Judea and elsewhere to help Caesar, and the climax of the so-called Alexandrian War begins. It takes place at the Battle of the Nile, where Ptolemy XIII drowns rather conveniently, and Caesar finally puts Cleo where she belongs, on the throne. But not alone. You didn't think we'd let a lady rule solo, did you? She's crowned alongside her even younger, still-living brother, Ptolemy XIV, whom of course she marries. A mere pretense, Dio tells us. Which she accepted, whereas in truth she ruled alone and spent all her time in Caesar's company. Even when things calm down, Caesar doesn't sail straight home. Not even when Rome calls him up, all like, Um, hello? Julius? What you doing? Sorry, what was that? I can't hear you. You're breaking up. Instead, he stays on for months, eating figs and basking in his boo Cleopatra's glory. It's said they go on a pleasure cruise down the Nile together, taking in the Great Pyramids with many ships in tow. Boat party! Why does he stay when there's no clear political benefit to doing so, and in fact, perhaps some political harm? Roman poet Lucan says that Cleopatra's been able to capture the old man with magic. I say she's captured him with her wit and many charms. Does he love her? He's most certainly fascinated and most definitely infatuated. Does she love him? It's hard to say, but I think she's drawn to his strength and his power. Besides, they make a great team, and they want to show Egypt, perhaps the entire Mediterranean, that this power couple is not going to be trifled with. But all good things must come to an end. In 47 BCE, Caesar sails into the sunset, leaving Cleopatra with 12,000 legionnaires to protect her. He also leaves her with a very royal bun in the oven, whom she'll give birth to not long after he departs. With her half-Roman son, Ptolemy XV Caesar, otherwise known as Caesarian, Cleopatra becomes perhaps the first Egyptian female pharaoh to use her own baby-making ability to her advantage. And she does it without giving up even one inch of her power. Queen! Over in Rome, Julius has a big triumph to celebrate all the places he's conquered. During it, he parades Cleo's sister Arsinoe through the streets in golden chains, which the people are kind of uncomfortable with. He then stuffs her in a temple and hopes she won't cause any trouble. A Ptolemy princess fading quietly into obscurity? Right, Julius. Good luck with that. 
He also kicks off some reforms directly inspired by his time in Egypt concerning a census and plans for a public library. He also reforms the unwieldy Roman calendar so that it more directly mirrors Egypt's 365-day schedule. And in his off hours, he probably fantasizes about Cleo while he's at it. Meanwhile, Cleopatra is finally left to rule Egypt in relative peace, with young Ptolemy XIV not much more than a royal seat warmer. But her regained position isn't without its challenges. After the Alexandrian War, there are a lot of hurt feelings and rivalries at court, which means she has to do some house cleaning. And by that, I mean some executions. But for a royal, this is pretty much par for the course. Like the rest of her family members, Cleo grew up with a sense of herself as a goddess on Earth, and she isn't afraid to act like one. She builds her image as a divine ruler through theater and epic pageantry, dressing herself up as Isis at every opportunity. She also gives money and favors to important priests, winning their devotion in a country where they are absolutely key. Like her ancestor, Arsinoe II, who we talked about in my last bonus episode, she participates in festivals and holy rituals, always rocking her goddess outfit, and the people are loving it. But she doesn't just rule from on high. She actually hears their grievances and helps settle disputes, smoothing out snarls between her subjects and her sometimes corrupt government officials. She takes the country's debts in hand, devaluing the currency and introducing coins with different denominations for the very first time. Their markings determine their value, not their weight, and greatly help to regulate the economy. This ancient queen would have been a Wall Street tycoon. She and her massive governmental system control goods and services, making sure that that money keeps flowing back to the crown. Take the brewing industry. Cleo makes sure that beer brewers operate only with a license and receive their barley from the state. And so, Egypt's most lucrative industries, from wheat and barley to papyrus, linen, and oil, are essentially royal monopolies. Cleopatra is only growing richer, raking in fully half of what the country produces. She commands the army and navy, negotiates with foreign powers, decides the price of goods, and oversees the country's agricultural plans. This is the Cleo we don't often hear about. Capable, money-wise, savvy, thoughtful, and benevolent. A papyrus dated to 35 BCE calls her Philopatris, or she who loves her country. And she does it all while carrying and then delivering a child, multitasking like a boss. She must do a pretty great job of getting her country running smoothly, enough so that, in 46 BCE, she feels confident enough to leave Egypt and sail for Rome with baby Caesarian in tow. Someone's about to create some drama. We don't know exactly why she leaves Egypt to fly into Julius's arms. Maybe she really misses him. More likely, she wants to remind him that she exists, thank you very much, and introduce him to his child, his only male issue. She's probably also hoping he'll name Caesarian his heir, making him the future ruler of both Rome and Egypt. It's hard to say for sure, but this queen is definitely going to make a splash.
We can only imagine her first impression of Rome, but it's probably something along the lines of... Ew. Why does this place smell like pee? As we've already explored, the Romans are great at building things like roads and aqueducts, but at this point, they're not renowned for their art or interior decorating. In fact, Rome is kind of ugly, at least at this point in history. Rough and tumble and constantly under construction. Right now, there is no Colosseum, no Pantheon. Compared to rich, colorful, sophisticated Alexandria, it won't exactly make Cleo feel the feelings. And the women. Rome likes its ladies quiet and subservient, at least in public, so this foreign queen with her lavish gifts and entourage and the illegitimate son of their leader in tow is bound to get tongues wagging. Cleo sweeps in like an ancient Kardashian. The public doesn't want to look, but they just can't help it. She even inspires a new Roman hairstyle that involves many braids. A trendsetter, as always. Julia seems happy to have her. He moves her into his country estate on the west bank of the Tiber. No foreign royals are allowed in Rome, so it's outside the city limits, but still a perfectly acceptable address. And thankfully, it's not the same house his wife Calpurnia lives in, because awkward. But Cleopatra's position in Rome is far from easy. As good as she is with languages, she isn't used to speaking Latin, and her biting wit and commanding presence must ruffle more than a few Roman feathers. In a world where women don't get to choose their husbands and they're supposed to keep eyes down, Cleopatra is very much out of her element, and there are men who resent her for it. As big deal complainer Cicero will say later, though never to her face. I detest the queen. To which I'm sure Cleo would reply, Boy, please, I don't like you either. Though they're sure to spend lots of time together, Caesar's away a lot, leaving her to fend for herself. Then, in 44 BCE, he's made dictator for life. We talked about this in our episodes on Servilia and Fulvia, but to remind you, Rome is still a republic at this point, and a lot of people are worried that Julius is getting too big for his britches, acting all kingly in a land that is emphatically opposed. Julius already has a reputation for enjoying luxury a little more than a Roman leader should do. Maybe spending all that time with a queen and living goddess in Egypt gave him some poisonous notions? And she makes the Senate members nervous. They can only imagine what she might be whispering to Julius over her wine glass during late-night dinners. I mean, really, babe. You're not fooling anyone. You want to be a king, so just become one. All that said, this is definitely the wrong moment for Julius to commission a huge golden statue of Cleopatra and install it in a temple right beside one of the goddess Venus. And yet, that's exactly what he does. This is probably par for the course for Cleopatra, who grew up surrounded by statues of her female family members. It is, after all, the Egyptian way. But the Romans are like, Are you serious right now? Because it's one thing to worship a foreign queen in private. It's quite another to publicly place her next to a Roman goddess while acting like a god yourself. This same year, fearing where Caesar's power is steering the Republic, some conspirators decide to stab him many times. We've covered this ground, and so we know what happens next. Anger, finger-pointing, fear, general chaos. But what of Cleopatra, who's still in Rome when this happens? How must she feel when she hears of Julius's demise? 
In a moment, she's lost her lover, her powerful protector, and all of the security she fought so hard to win. And now she's a foreign queen with Caesar's only natural son in a city that's about as flammable as a barrel of gasoline. She knows when it's time to make her exit. Okay, minions, it's time for us to bounce. As 26-year-old Cleo boards her ship for home, she must be plagued by dark, troubled thoughts. If she was hoping for a loving future with Caesar, those plans are torn to pieces. If she wanted lasting security, that is nothing but tattered rags at her feet. And to add insult to injury, when Julius's will is read aloud, she and her son feature nowhere in it. She thought she played the game so well, and now it seems like she's right back where she started, rich and powerful, but also vulnerable. And there may be a nagging question at the back of her mind, circling and painful. Did her presence in Rome help bring about his death? Some sources say that when she sails away from Rome, Cleopatra is pregnant and has a miscarriage on the journey. That alone would be heartbreak enough. But she also knows that Rome is in chaos. How long before its generals start fighting for power, dragging her and Egypt back into their squabbles? What if those powers see her son with Caesar as a threat they have to get rid of? How long before the wolves start circling again? And how is she going to keep them at bay? Next time, we'll see Cleopatra cleverly navigate these very perilous waters. We'll also see her strike up an alliance with another Roman general that will go down in history as one of the greatest love affairs of all time. But was it? We'll experience lavish feasts, passionate love, savage murders, war, triumph, heartbreak. We'll see Cleopatra reach her highest heights and then fall. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you want to support the show, tell a friend about it, leave a review, or send me an email just saying hello. You can also become a patron or check out my merchandise over at my Etsy shop, where you'll find lady-centric art, including a map and timeline of ancient Egypt. For a transcript of this episode, lots of images, a list of my resources, and more, check out the show notes at theexploresspodcast.com. Come find me on Instagram or Facebook at theexploresspodcast and Twitter at theexploresspod. The music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of Keith Sizza, as well as Derek and Brandon Feicher, whose details you can find in the show notes. And thanks to the following voiceover legends, Veronica Washington-Ramos, who plays our Cleopatra, Bill Chevalier, who plays Julius Caesar, Sean from Stories of Your and Yours podcast, who plays Plutarch, Avery Downing, who plays Cicero, and my favorite brother, John Armstrong. 